my life really blossomed after 2011. I knew I was trans in age five and I hit it, you know, up through my forties and early fifties. And I would have told my, myself as an engineer, you know, have the courage to be who you are. Hello, I'm Sue Nelson and welcome to the Create a Future podcast brought to you by the Queen Elizabeth Prize for Engineering, celebrating engineering visionaries and inspiring creative minds. It's been 50 years since someone from Earth last walked on the moon, but footsteps will be gracing the lunar surface once more within the next few years due to NASA's Artemis missions. And today's guest, Christine Bland, has played an important role in Artemis through her work as an electrical engineer for Lockheed Martin Space Systems Company in the US, specifically on the Orion spacecraft that will take astronauts back to the moon. Christine's many awards include the Juan Colorado Lifetime Achievement Award for contributions to engineering, diversity and inclusion into the workforce, as well as receiving the LGBT Engineer of the Year Award in 2014. And Christine, who's transgender, continues to play a role in expanding the visibility of minorities within engineering, of which we'll hear more later. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. First of all, how would you describe the Orion spacecraft? The Orion spacecraft is a state-of-the-art space vehicle. It's designed to take astronauts into deep space, to the moon, beyond the moon, to Mars eventually. It's got some of the most advanced electronics on it that's ever flown in space. People remember the landing on the moon and the inside of the Apollo capsules. There are quite a few in museums now. Mm-hmm. And they're all sort of gadgets and switches that you, you move. But actually, and this is where you come in, that the inside of Orion is is a different thing altogether, isn't it? Yeah, it definitely is totally different than the Apollo capsules. The Apollo capsules, of course, were built uh, from an electronic standpoint with transistors, which are large and bulky and very power consuming. Today's spacecraft is built with uh, state-of-the-art electronics that are radiation-hardened to withstand the deep space uh, heavy particle bombardments and the the, um, solar winds. So it's very, very technologically advanced from the Apollo. So it gives us a lot more capabilities as far as uh, what we can do with electronics and docking and maneuvering and monitoring of the uh, fields around the spacecraft. And your team was specifically responsible for the digital design of specific units, weren't they? My particular job with Orion is I'm responsible for all the electronics or complex electronics ICs, that sort of thing on uh, Orion to make sure that they are designed correctly and uh, basically bulletproof from issues uh, occurring. And what was the most challenging aspect of that design? Oh, there's there's so many. I I couldn't begin to tell you how many challenges and issues we've had to overcome over the years. I joined Orion in 2009 to uh, uh, lead up the uh, design effort for the data and power units, which control the power throughout the vehicle. And between 2009 and, and 2014, when we launched EFT-1, we had a huge number of engineering challenges to overcome. 
and we needed to pull this box together because it was being designed for, by three different aerospace companies and trying to managing those different uh, uh, design teams to come up with one box in time that met our requirements for the vehicle was very challenging. Now, I was at the launch of the Orion spacecraft test flight in December 2014. For me, it was an amazing experience, you know, a definite wow moment. But I can imagine for you, it was not so much a sort of, oh, look at that. It's a great launch that there were a few more emotions going on in your mind. Oh, there. God, yes. The 2014 launch, just like I'm going to feel when we launch Artemis uh, 1 here in a, a few months, was exhilarating. One of the things that I've learned through my career is on all of these deep space missions or NASA missions, there's something called delayed gratification. We work for years and years and years to, to build these systems, watch them go from a concept to actual hardware and then launch. During the 2014 launch, I was here in Denver at one of our facilities working one of the consoles for supporting that launch. And when that took off, it just put tears in your eyes, you know, to see years and years of hard work of you and your teammates going into the heavens. And that particular mission, of course, it was a short mission, but, you know, it went up through the atmosphere, went through the Van Allen belt, went deeper into space than we've been in the last 50 years, comes back at a high velocity, came zapping down into the ocean and the mission was such a success watching that whole thing was just beyond uh, words and being able to describe how you would feel uh, to see your your efforts being paid off so successfully it just it's beyond words it must also be you know so nerve-wracking also to know that if something goes wrong <laughs> i hope it's not me sort of yeah sort of feeling yeah. Absolutely. You know, we've all been, every engineer, every technician, every everyone that's involved across the board with any of these missions, you know, it's in 30 seconds, all that work is being tested when they hit that button and it's lifting off and then during the mission. And I've been on the other side of that question, which is what happens when it goes wrong? And you just, your heart sinks, you're, you get this gut and you start asking yourself the question, what did I do wrong? What possibly could uh, the stuff I worked on cause uh, the anomaly of whatever it is to happen? And you start doubting everything that you've done. Do you feel that, you know, now that engineers are given a little bit more kudos and recognition for the role that they play in these missions now? Yeah, the you know, the life of engineers have drastically changed. If you remember watching in the 50s, the engineers in the various console rooms and so forth, they all wore white shirts, black ties, black pants, short glasses. haircuts, glasses, <laughs> yeah. pocket protectors. And today they come from all walks of life and they're much more human, much more uh, personable and relatable. It was very male centric back in the day. And that's all you saw, though there were women that were participating in the uh, what was going on. You saw that in Hidden Figures, uh, mm -hmm. the, the uh, documentary that was made a few years ago. And so a lot of people had a hard time relating to it. I'm glad I didn't because, uh, you know, back in junior high school and high school, I knew what I wanted to do with my life. 
and uh, becoming an engineer and working on NASA projects was my lifelong dream. And somehow, without really knowing how, I made it work. That's amazing to know what you want to do from such a young age mm-hmm. and then achieve it. I vaguely remember, you know, I was uh, on a school uh, trip on the school bus and for some reason my mind started wondering what I wanted to do and being an engineer for the NASA programs what popped in and it stayed with me. That image stayed with me my entire life. And little by little, I worked my way to uh, achieve that goal. And I don't know what things I did to make it happen, but it happened. (laughs) And, uh, you know, from where I started out in the 50s and where I'm right now, nobody predicted I could get to this point. You've also been given this Snoopy pin from NASA. Now, quite a few people outside the States won't quite realize the significance of that. So perhaps you could explain it. Back in the in, in the 50s and so forth, the Peanuts uh, cartoon was very into space. They made Snoopy basically a mascot, and they started giving this award called the Silver Snoopy Award to uh, individuals that exhibited the best of in, in the field for making sure astronauts were safe, protected, that basically gave their all to make the mission successful. So I received that honor a couple of years ago, nominated through the program manager, through NASA's office. And it was, you know, I was very honored. I'm not that's, surprised. Yeah. yeah. That's, that's, that's the amazing. astronauts themselves. It's given by the astronaut managers. It's people outside, totally outside of your venue that's recognizing the stuff that you're doing. And let's face it, if anyone's going to appreciate the work of engineers on a space program and the beauty and the accuracy and the importance of it, Mm -hmm. it's going to be astronauts whose lives depend on it. Absolutely. And that, to me, that was, you know, I've received a number of accolades and honors through my career. And there's a handful that are just, I I will treasure tremendously. Uh, You mentioned earlier the Lifetime Achievement, the Engineering, Engineer of the Year Award, and the Silver Snoopy are three that I just, uh, it just blows my mind that I've achieved those. Let's change astronomical bodies from the moon to Mars, because you've done a huge amount of work relating to Mars. How did Mm -hmm. that actually begin? You know, like a lot of things in life, I just sort of fell into my first assignment. I was brought into the team here in Denver that was working on uh, uh, the Mars uh, observers, the satellites that uh, we've sent up to Mars to grab images and science from uh, Mars. So one by one, the programs I worked on were successful. And so, you know, by the time I switched over and started working Orion, I'd worked uh, a tremendous number of deep space missions and satellites that have uh, brought back, you know, uh, so much information and knowledge about our solar system. But you've designed the electronics for quite a few of the Mars rovers like Spirit and Opportunity. Mm -hmm. The Spirit and Opportunity were designed by JPL and um, the folks at uh, my management and I knew at JPL brought me in to work on the uh, 
power system and the, the, the system that keeps the spacecraft alive during night because the way the rovers would work, they'd collect energy and do their science during the day and they'd go to sleep at night. Well, they needed a system to uh, collect that energy and watch the health during the night and then wake everybody up and say, it's time to get going, guys. <laughs> and uh, so they brought me on board to do that. And it was a lot of fun. As far as I know, some of that design is still being used on the rovers, the follow-on rovers. You know, if it works, NASA it doesn't want to, you yeah. know, why redesign something that works? So, so, And it must be hard, you know, designing electronics for rovers that are millions of miles away. And, you know, the, the power of the sun for solar arrays is, is much weaker at that distance, mm-hmm. you know. Is that sort of one of the main challenges that you have in terms of power supply for your electronics, or do you work around that? Well, the, uh, the you've got to make sure, you know, when the, when NASA decides they're going to send a mission, they uh, specify the conditions that your electronics have to operate under, and you design it to work, and you find a way to uh, meet those requirements with the power, the weight, the functionality with the tools you've got. So it is challenging. And you, you sort of hinted at something that I'd like to follow up on, which is the difficulty of uh, working with spacecraft that's a million miles away on a distant planet or uh, taking pictures of uh, Jupiter or or uh, telescopes that you, you're not there. You can't see what's going on. When something happens, you know, you've got to figure out what's going on to keep the, the spacecraft alive. And that is extremely difficult because all you get is some telemetry, you know, the design, you know, the characteristics of what's going on. And solving those problems to keep the uh, mission going sometimes is very, very difficult. And we've all heard of the, the issues that the rovers had, but NASA overcame them. You know, we've got, you know, to be an engineer today working uh, NASA stuff, you've got to be very talented and be able to figure out things that you don't have all of the pieces, parts to figure it out with. You've already touched upon, you know, what led you towards your current job, this, Mm -hmm. you know, this desire to work for NASA as an engineer, as a child inspired by the Apollo missions. And and you went on to study electrical engineering at the University of Colorado, Denver. How did you get your first job at Lockheed? Actually, I started working for Martin Marietta that merged into Lockheed Martin at the time, some years later. But basically, uh, I had interned at uh, Martin Marietta and had made uh, connections. So I uh, let them know when I was graduating and I reached out to the uh, engineers and the HR group and got my foot in the door and I've uh, been very successful ever since. Now, while you were working at Lockheed in 2011, you transitioned from Ricky to Christine, who you've called your true authentic self. Was it an easy thing to do? No, it was extremely hard leading up to the transition, coming out to my co-workers. By then, I had been working in the the NASA fields and become well-known both inside Lockheed Martin and NASA and the suppliers that provide a lot of our electronics as uh, Ricky, a very male-type person. And when I had to come out, I had to start you know, reach out to our HR group and our managers. And at the time I came out, very few, if not any, uh, individuals had come out before me. There had been some, but 
they were far and few between. So we had to find uh, and develop the processes and how to strategize letting everybody know. At that time, a lot of engineers would change careers, they'd change locations, they'd disappear from their old gender and reappear somewhere else as their new gender. And I wanted to keep doing what I did. I love it so much. So we uh, came out and we had a big meeting where we had maybe 200 people where, you know, something I kept so secret my entire life was on display to all my coworkers in one moment. It was uh, life-changing, <laughs> to say the least. And so we let everybody know. We called all of my suppliers. We called NASA, HR, and my managers to let them know that Ricky was turning into Christine and that... Uh, the Lockheed Martin program management expected uh, respect and uh, uh, and the work not to change. You know, from the Lockheed's perspective, doesn't matter if I'm male or female. It it's the work I'm doing is so critical, and important. It's got to keep going and not miss a beat. If things go wrong, you cost money, it costs schedule, and you know uh, it could end up with uh, loss of mission or some other really bad events if you don't keep everybody moving at the same pace. And how did your fellow engineers react? They were very positive. They were surprised. You know, they were uh, extremely uh, supportive. If anybody was not supportive at that time, I didn't know about it. They didn't let me know. From my experience now, that's somewhat unusual because there always seems to be somebody that doesn't like the fact that they're that they need to respect somebody's gender change. I'm a very personable person, I think, and uh, that goes a long way for my success. And I, when people were confused or had issues, I'd take the time to listen to what they had to say and explain what was going on. And if they made a mistake with pronouns or so forth, you know, it uh, was easily addressed at the time and never became an issue. My life really blossomed after 2011. And did the fact that Lockheed Martin had a pride group, which had been founded in 1981, which is a huge amount of time ago, Mm -hmm. did that make a real difference? It did. Uh, I'd actually reached out to the Pride organization in 2007 because I started getting very nervous about uh, the fact I was starting to wear polish on my hands and and some other uh, things that I was doing that would change my appearance. And I was getting nervous that I'd get laid off and I had no idea what the protections were. So the Pride group is who I reached out first and they'd... uh, put me in touch with the uh, HR group and the diversity inclusion. And we we spent a lot of time talking through the issues and what, what the issues. And I was reassured through that chain of network that Lockheed had my back, that I would not get fired, that they did not expect any kind of repercussions for as I changed and went through a transition. Now, it took four more years before I actually transitioned, but, uh, you know, that pride group was so important because, you know, that's if you're trans, if you're gay, if you're non-binary, anybody that has uh, fears that something's going on to have other employees that are supportive, that knows where you came from, 
it, it is so valuable to to relieve those fears and give people resources on how to address their issues. And that goes if you're African American, if you're Asian, uh, military, any of the other LGBT pride, uh, ERG, BRG organizations out there, that they are very, very needed throughout uh, industry. Now, you're now a, a leader within Lockheed Martin's Pride Group, and you're also a board member of Outer Innovate, which is related to the promotion of engineers, scientists, and educators within STEM fields and, and to get more awareness of of these issues. Now, it's difficult to get exact numbers, but estimates suggest that LGBT people are less represented in STEM fields than expected. Why do you think that is? I know that a lot of fields, a lot of people that are still in the closet, if you will, are afraid that if they come out, they will lose their position, their credibility. uh, So they just don't come out. You know, people are people. Uh, So from my perspective from the U.S. and the folks I've talked with inside the United States, there is a lot of movement, you know, a lot of anti-LGBT and especially trans feelings out there that are active and really making it difficult for people to live their lives uh, as their true authentic self, either in a gay marriage or a relationship, you know, uh, or being trans and, and uh, trans kids are a big focus in the U.S. these days. And I tend to treat it as, you know, People fight against change, and some of the things that the LGBT represent is change at the very fundamental perspective of our day-to-day lives. You pointed out that when I transitioned, all my coworkers had to change with me. They had to start to see me as female and not as male. And that lays back in the mind uh, of, of how we relate to each other from our very beginning as kids. And though, you know, my personal experience was very positive, other folks, it isn't. It's the fear that they won't be accepted by their friends and family and coworkers. That is one of the big fears that keep people in the, in the closet. And it takes time and visibility and exposure to the folks that are in the, in the LGBTQ community to really make it so it's a, an everyday occurrence. And why is it important to bring what some people might consider the the personal, particularly, you know, generational sort of view to things is that you sort of kept who you are separate to work? And here's you, you, you touched one of the issues is that, you know, we take a lot of things for granted, you know, uh, a heterosexual couple that's got kids. You know, they'll have pictures on their desk. They will talk about their weekend and things that they've done. You know, if they get married or engaged, they talk about their uh, honeymoon and so forth. And so, you know, just as human beings, we are social. We talk about these things with one another. And most folks don't even think about that when they're in the workplace. It's there. It's just such a part of who we are as uh, human beings that we don't think about it. But when somebody comes out as gay and they uh, start to show pictures of their husband or their uh, wife and their, their gay marriage, it's shocking to them. So 
all of a sudden now, why are you bringing this into the workplace? Well, it's because that's who we are as human beings. We are social creatures. We share who we are, our experiences. We go to ball games. We go to concerts. And if you're, if you know and like somebody that's gay, the fact that you're going to be around them and they're going to have their their spouses with them and their boyfriends and their girlfriends, you know. It, it's just part of being human. And some folks have a hard time with that. They see it as you're sticking in my face and uh, it doesn't belong here. Well, it belongs wherever human beings are. So this might explain why the magazine Chemical Engineering and News, when they conducted a, a sort of an informal poll in 2016 of its readers, they found that 44% of LGBT respondents said that they'd felt excluded or intimidated or harassed at work in the course of their career. What do you wish you could tell yourself, you know, if you were going back in time to when you finished your degree? I would say have courage, have faith that uh, you'll get there not only as a, a successful engineer, but your true authentic self. I knew I was trans in age five and I hit it all the way until I was, you know, up through my 40s and early 50s until I started realizing I couldn't live that life anymore. And it took me a long time to get to the point where I had the courage to come out. And I would have told my myself as an engineer that... Uh, you know, have the courage to be who you are and you would succeed. That's, you know, have faith in yourself. And is this, do you think why maybe the, you know, often in any profession, the role of a mentor can make a huge difference to someone's career, um, particularly if there's someone who is like you? Do you think that the this role of mentoring is is, you know, crucial for diversity in engineering? I think that is absolutely crucial because think about it. You're sitting there your entire life struggling with some issue or an issue. You're gay, you're bisexual, you're transgender, and you're struggling with this in your own little, in your head, in your, you've isolated because you know the folks that are around you may not accept it and they may, you know, it's just so much fear is caught up. Having a mentor that's gone through it and can advise you on how to to, uh, tackle those issues is so important. I've mentored quite a few individuals through the years and, uh, you know, I wish I would have had a mentor when I came out of uh, uh, when I came out of college or in high school, for that matter, that would help me uh, solve a lot of the issues I suffered through my life as a result of being in that closet. A mentor would would have made that gave me the courage and the tools I needed to overcome my fears and succeed whenever I came out. Well, it sounds like your company, you know, played a hugely positive role in terms of uh, uh, your your career and, and life. I, I wondered, as we come to the end of the podcast, what groundbreaking engineering innovation would you like to see win the Queen Elizabeth Prize? From a new technology standpoint, I would say uh, advances in computing uh, technologies that uh, were impervious to radiation would help us. Because one of the things I do really believe is that we are on the verge of uh, 
just a huge industry in the space field. You know, I'm involved with the ESA stuff. Making, European Space Agency. Yeah, yeah, they're building our service module. So I've been able to work with a lot of uh, uh, engineers from in Europe on that effort. You and know, this is the module that powers the Orion. It powers spacecraft. it. It's the. It's also the uh, thruster. It does all of that. Those technologies more than just power. But being that I have to make sure that all the FPGAs and ASICs. What work, are FPGAs? Think of them as custom ICs okay. uh, that uh, allow us. Circuits. Yeah, yeah. That we design allow us to stiff a, stick a lot of electronics in a very small package. I've been able to review a lot of stuff and gotten to know many engineers from France, Italy, England, uh, Belgium, and uh, it's it's been eye-opening. At some point, I plan on, when I retire, traveling Europe and spending time in the art museums and stuff. We haven't even touched on that, but you you know you love art, and I've looked at your art online as well. It's uh, obviously, a, a, well, we always say that, Scientists and engineers are very creative people, and so many of them love the arts and are engaged in the arts. Absolutely. And, you know, and you're the same. Yeah. And so one of the things I've always, you know, I wanted to go to the Louvre and spend time in the Louvre and some of the art art uh, galleries in England. And you can't take a vacation and spend a week there. You've got to you've got to spend time and immerse yourself in the culture and the, the people and spend time to, you know, travel and learn the art of uh, what's going on in Europe. But getting back to science. You know, there's a lot of uh, momentum across the country uh, and in the world, for that matter, to get us into space and, and do learn more about the moon, Mars, you know, our entire solar system, for that matter of fact. And it couldn't be done without an engineer like yourself. Christine Bland, thank you very much for joining me on the Create the Future podcast. Thank you. Find out more about the Queen Elizabeth Prize for Engineering by following QE Prize on Twitter and Instagram or visit qeprize.org. Thanks for listening and join us again next time.